You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Russia says shrapnel from America's war on that nice company Huawei is destroying the world. Russia also tells Tinder to fork over user pictures and messages. A recorded future study outlines the case for regarding Huawei as a security risk. U.S. Customs and Border Protection discloses a breach of images collected at a border crossing point. Crooks are taking advantage of Gmail features, notes on recent mergers, and the top 10 bugs that are bugging bug hunters. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, June 11, 2019. Bloomberg quotes Russia's Deputy Prime Minister Akimov as deploring the way U.S. and especially its suspicion of Huawei is destroying the world. The shrapnel will hit everybody, Mr. Akimov added in a discussion outlining and defending Russia's decision to build its very own sovereign internet. The tech world, whose passing the deputy prime minister prospectively mourns, is presumably one of freely flowing commerce and information, and Moscow's crackdown on Telegram is therefore painful, as he puts it, and this is no doubt the result of American shrapnel, as is the Russian government's request that Tinder hand over photos and messages exchanged by Russian users of the dating service. We're pretty sure he means fragmentation and not shrapnel, but... Anywho, it's Washington's fault. In any case, TASS is authorized to state that Roskomnadzor says that Tinder has agreed to comply. That's from TASS. No word yet directly from Tinder. In any case, the deputy prime minister's statement is the latest sign of a newfound tenderness for Huawei in Russia. Stateside, Huawei has been investing in lobbyists. Fast Company reports that the company's expenditure on lobbying, which amounted to $570,000 in 2017, rose in 2018 to $3.7 million. The company's smaller competitor, ZTE, is also concerned, and concerned to the tune of $1.4 million that it's already spent on K Street this year. Over in the UK, Huawei representatives are reassuring Parliament that the company is no threat, the aim on both sides of the Atlantic is the same, avoidance of crippling sanctions and continued access to a lucrative market. Anti-Huawei sentiment in the U.S. extends beyond the administration. In fact, administration critics are expressing concerns that President Trump might be induced to let Huawei off the hook in the course of cutting a trade deal with China. So why are people worried about Huawei? There is the company's reputation for unreliability with respect to its partner's trade secrets, which we've discussed in the past. But there are things about the very nature of the company that would give one pause, even were it to become a model of respect for contracts. 
Recorded Future has published a study that explains why it's reasonable to consider Huawei a security risk. The company is large enough to become both a monopoly and a technological monoculture. A monopoly wields considerable power that's easily misused. A monoculture is also a problem for a technological ecosystem as much as it is in a biological one. Monocultures are at risk of sudden collapse under stress. They can be brought down because they lack the resilience a more diversified ecosystem tends naturally to enjoy. The way in which Huawei increasingly pervades global supply chains is also cause for concern, the study argues. And finally, the company exists in symbiosis with a repressive authoritarian government. It grew and flourished under those conditions, and it's unlikely to be willing or even able to adapt itself to trading in an environment governed by law as opposed to mere policy. It's been just about a year since GDPR went into full effect in the EU, with privacy implications felt worldwide. We checked in with Fireman's Tim Woods for a look back at the GDPR's impact. Well, you've definitely seen an uptick in the reported number of breaches where people think that perhaps the information that they have ownership of or have responsibility or custody of, we've seen that go up by almost 40% higher Mm -hmm. reporting breaches and or exposed information. And I use the term breach kind of loosely because sometimes it's just exposed information. It's not necessarily, it's the actual individual who owns the information that has uh, accidentally, due to misconfiguration of services or misconfiguration of database access or whatever, they've exposed that information and they really can't qualify or quantify who's actually had access to that information. But regardless, the reporting of that has definitely went up since GDPR went live back in May 26th of last year. And what's been the global impact? I think there's greater awareness also from, especially by large enterprises or global companies where you have a global presence, you know, you have to, it's it's like any of the regulatory compliance initiatives, you have to kind of look at your zones of control. It's like, where are we using that information? Do we have EU citizens data or not? Are we processing EU citizens data or not? And sometimes in a multi-global large conglomerate, you don't really know where that information may or may not be. And then also some of the things that maybe we don't, again, if I go back to the awareness of it, is some of the things that you may not consider, such as a marketing mail out or a marketing database that may actually have email addresses of EU citizens and things of that nature. It gives us reason for pause to go back and look at the information that we're holding on to to say, hey, even though we're not in the EU, are we processing any of that personally identifiable information that may be associated to an EU citizen? Have there been any unintended consequences, anything that's taken place that where people didn't expect it was going to go down that way? I've spoke to a number of different companies. I've spoke to a number of different individuals and companies, and they've definitely kind of stepped back to look at what they believe their, number one, their legal stance is, what their legal responsibility is, and where they where they are using personally identifiable information and then how they determine the association of that personally identifiable information. You know, is it related uh, to EU citizenship or not? And then just in general, again, you know, are we giving individuals the right to refusal or the right to be forgotten? And are we making sure that we're transparent? I mean, we've seen some pretty big fines kind of coming down the pipe there. They, you know, from a GDR perspective, I, there haven't been what I would call, you know, because the teeth, 
I call it the teeth around GDPR, which sometimes brings the enforcement or the recognition, you know, of, hey, we need to be compliant to this. You know, I think Google probably was the largest where they were fined $50 million for the failure to acknowledge the transparency of the information. But now we see here in the States right now, we see Facebook kind of running from GDPR. And of course, Facebook is facing a big FTC fine right now, too. They've set aside I don't know, almost $3 billion, you know, due to a lack of transparency. So I think some of these, you know, people are definitely taking note um, when it comes to the penalty phase and the fine phase as far as what could the implications to our company be because you don't want to have something that could be catastrophic to our business. That's Tim Woods from Firemon. U.S. Customs and Border Protection says a subcontractor lost pictures of travelers' faces and license plates taken at a single border crossing point. CBP didn't say which subcontractor was involved, but the Washington Post reports that it was Perceptix. There's the circumstantial evidence of the breach Perceptix disclosed late last month, and the CBP email that announced the problem had the subject line, CBP Perceptix Public Statement. The Post and others connect the dots and conclude that the Tennessee-based provider of license plate readers was the company in question. Perceptix has been a vendor to CBP, Wired Notes, in a decades-long relationship. Many observers are concluding that this is another object lesson in the inherent risk of accumulating data. Those data can prove irresistible to attackers. Data collection and the tight coupling of services are attractive when they appear in the private sector, too. Google's Gmail and Calendar services are providing an object lesson here as well. Calendar is designed to let anyone schedule a meeting with any user, and that, Kaspersky researchers report, is a bit of functionality that's being exploited by criminals. When you get a calendar invitation, a pop-up notification of that invitation appears on your phone. The attackers embed malicious code in their invitation... Because users are accustomed to trust the invitations, the pop-up becomes an effective fishhook. Kaspersky says that the attacks observed so far are sending the unwary to credential-stealing sites, but there's considerable untapped opportunity for other forms of social engineering here as well. A senior engineer at Synopsys commented to Forbes that, quote, automation is not your friend in cases such as this, end quote. Don't let a calendar app automatically stick invitations into your calendar. Raytheon's combination with United Technologies, described at the time of its announcement as United Technologies' acquisition of Raytheon, is now being characterized as a merger of equals. The combined company will be called Raytheon Technologies, a very large aerospace integrator that will play in both civilian and military markets. Notably, United Technologies' carrier, the HVAC company, and Otis Elevators, will be spun out. The new company's investor prospectus lists cyber protection for commercial aerospace as one of the complementary capabilities Raytheon brings to the merger. Raytheon owns cybersecurity company Forcepoint. United Technologies owns security provider Linnell. Salesforce's acquisition of Tableau in a $15.7 billion deal represents a CRM and data analytics merger with complex security implications. The company will handle a tremendous quantity of sensitive data. As ZDNet points out, the acquisition suggests that Salesforce has ambitions outside of its core CRM market. And finally, which vulnerabilities are bug hunters finding? 
HackerOne, which coordinates bug bounty programs for a living, has taken a look at what they characterize as 120,000 security vulnerabilities reported across more than 1,400 customer programs globally. Here's what they found the bug hunters are finding. The top 10 vulnerabilities are from 10 to 1. Number 10, cross-site request forgery. Number 9, generic improper access control. Number 8, insecure direct object reference. Number 7, server-side request forgery. Number 6, code injection. Coming in at number 5 is SQL injection. Number 4, privilege escalation. Number 3, information disclosure. Number 2, generic improper authentication. And the number one vulnerability the bug hunters are finding is... Cross-site scripting. All types of cross-site scripting. Domain, reflected, stored, and generic. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He's the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute. He's also host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's great to have you back. Um, You wanted to uh, share some information about a botnet that you all have been uh, tracking there at Sands. Uh, What can you tell us? Yeah, this is sort of an interesting botnet for a number of reasons. Now, uh, first of all, it's uh, going straight after RDP, this remote desktop protocol uh, that, of course, has caused a lot of news lately with uh, the 
Blue Keep vulnerability that is sort of rumored to be in the development of being turned to a major worm. Now, this botnet doesn't actually do anything about this vulnerability. What it's really just going after is weak passwords. And I think it's a good lesson learned here. It's the old vulnerabilities that often get you, not necessarily the new and shiny ones. Now, this botnet is currently just sort of collecting vulnerable hosts, so it's brute-forcing passwords. Once it finds passwords that work, reports them back. Also interesting, uh, this botnet is entirely written in Java, uh, which is sort of unusual because in order to work, it actually has to deliver the full Java runtime. So the entire download for the botnet is uh, around 80 megabytes. Hmm. And you all are referring to this as Gold Brute? Gold Brute is what we called it because the one sort of unique Java class that was added uh, to the code here, uh, that's called Gold Brute. So we went uh, with uh, that particular name. Now, there's some uh, interesting um, uh, behaviors here of the way that it reaches out, the way it only hits uh, uh, vulnerable servers uh, from different directions. There, there's some interesting things going on. Yeah, so uh, once a host gets infected uh, with this particular botnet, it will first start scanning for systems that are listening for RDP, so port 3389. Now, once it found new systems listening, it will report them back to a command control server to be added to a list to later be brute forced. The interesting part here is that essentially this command control server is first waiting for individual bots to do some work for it. It waits for 80 vulnerable hosts to be reported back before it then feeds new vulnerable hosts back to the bot to be actually brute forced. So it's sort of a two-stage process where first the bot that is looking for just hosts that have this port exposed so that possible listening on RDP once a bot proves its worth, so to speak, by reporting 80 vulnerable hosts back, then it's actually put to task to brute force passwords. And the way this works, again, is that each bot only gets one username and password pair. So we assume that this is sort of used to avoid uh, some of the lockout uh, that some services are doing. So each bot is trying a username and password. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, well, uh, another bot will try another username and password later. Now, you all did some analysis of this in your own lab. You were able to uh, to manipulate the code to make it uh, send the host and username and password to your lab machine. What did you find out there? Well, uh, what we found is that uh, this particular list of usernames and passwords uh, that is being retrieved, uh, the entire target list is about one and a half million uh, vulnerable systems large. So uh, that's basically what's being fed by this command control server. Once it gets into a system, all it does basically is then reporting back that, yes, I got into it. I got into it uh, with this username and password. So where do you suppose it's going to go from here? Any, any ideas what to expect? Well, there's sort of two options. First of all, that whatever group is behind this gold fruit botnet is later going to deploy some additional payload. Or now in the malicious economy, we sort of have these different roles that uh, groups take on, that this particular group is just collecting the machines and then selling them off to someone else that has a worthwhile payload for them. It's interesting work you all are doing here. It's the Gold Brute Botnet. Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. Thank you.
Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.